Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 to verse 13. Hebrews, uh, I apologize, Hebrews 4, 11 um, to 13. We're going to continue our study in the book of Hebrews this morning. Um, we actually, uh, sermon number 19 uh, in the book of Hebrews. And um, today we're just going to focus on these three verses. Um, Hebrews 4, 11 to 16. Here is what the author of Hebrews said. Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged, any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, and there is no creation creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Amen? Amen. We know that, the, as you know by now, hopefully, uh, the author of Hebrews wrote his book to uh, the Jewish people who uh, became Christian. And after they became Christian, they went back or they wanted to go back to Judaism and to abandon Christianity and Christ. So he wrote that book to them to encourage them not to do so. And pretty much, again, the first 10 chapters, he's arguing the, super, the superiority and the supremacy of Christ and Christianity over Judaism. We talked about this before in, in chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. The author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is superior to the prophets. And then verse 4 was kind of transitional. And then from chapter 1, verse 4, all the way till the end of chapter 2, he's arguing that Jesus is superior to the angels. And then... Pretty much chapter 3 and chapter 4, the whole two chapters, he's arguing that Jesus is superior to Moses. In chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, he established his theological argument. Jesus is superior than Moses. They're both with faithful, but Jesus is superior or as much worthy of honor more than Moses in as much as the building um, doesn't deserve as much glory as the builder. So Jesus is the builder, the creator, and Moses is part of the building. And number two, Jesus is the divine son of God, but Moses is a servant in the house of God. That's why um, Jesus is superior than Moses. After he established his theological arguments, he went on from chapter 3, verse toward the end of verse 6, almost all the way till the end of chapter 4, the author of Hebrews is arguing that the followers of Jesus should be superior and walk differently than the followers of uh, Moses. And he compared his readers to the first generation that Moses got out of the land of Egypt. And to support his argument, he quoted from Psalm 95, verse 7 to 11. And pretty much from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to, chapter, to the end of chapter 4, he has three main points. Number one is that quotation of Psalm 95, and that's chapter 3, verse 7 to 11. And then he has the application of Psalm 95 to his reader, that's verse 12 to 15. And then he went on to the exhortation from Psalm 95 to his readers, that's from chapter 3, verse 16, all the way to chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. He exhorted his readers to listen to the words of Psalm 95 and apply it to themselves negatively in a way not to be like the first generation that left the land of Egypt and positively throughout chapter 4 by asking them to strive to enter into God's rest. Amen? Mm -hmm. 
And that is the passage we're reading today is part of his exhortation. Throughout chapter 4, the author of Hebrews gave four reasons to his readers that they should and must strive to enter into God's kingdom or God's rest. Number one, because the promise remains. That's the first three verses. Number two, because the rest remain. That's all the way till the end of verse 10. And then today, we're going to look into his third exhortation to his reader to strive to enter into the rest of God. And that is because the word of God is living. Next week, we're going to look into his last reason to exhort his readers to enter into God's rest. And that is because our high priest can sympathize. Amen? So when the author of Hebrews here is talking about God's word, it is not just some random thought that he brought out of nowhere and stuck it in the book and he just mailed it out to the people. He has a reason for it. This fits in the context of him exhorting his readers to strive to enter into God's rest and not to disobey the word of God. Amen? Verse 11 starts by saying this. Let us therefore... We talked about the word therefore before. What does it mean? That means that what is coming after it is a result of what he had just been saying, right? What has he been saying throughout chapter 4? He's telling his reader, let's strive to enter into God's rest. He told them that the promise remain and that the rest remain. Therefore, because the promise of God to enter into his rest is still available and the actual rest of God is still available. As a result of that, let's all strive. Let's all be diligent to enter into that rest. Amen. And then he said, why should we be diligent? Here is the reason. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Amen. We see that throughout his sermon on Psalm 95, throughout chapter 3 and chapter 4, the author of Hebrews kept on exhorting and encouraging his reader to strive to be obedient to the word of God and enter his rest. We see the first time in chapter 3, verse 12. He says this, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. Amen? Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it, the promise of God. And here, right here in chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter into the rest. Triple warning throughout his sermon on Psalm 95, where the author of Hebrews is encouraging not just his readers as a group, but each individual of the people that reads his book and read his sermon to strive even on an individual basis to enter into God's rest. Amen? Beware, let us fear, let us be diligent, lest any of us might fall from enter into the presence of God or the rest of God. And then he said, let's, let's strive and be diligent so no one will fall according to the same example of disobedience. What is he talking about? Example of disobedience. He's talking about the first generation. That's what he pretty much his background of chapter 3 and 4. The first generation that left the land of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And they disobeyed God in Kadesh Barnea when they were about to enter into the land of the promise. The spies came back. Ten of them gave bad report that they cannot do it. But two spies gave good report that they can actually do inherit the kingdom, the, the rest of God, the land of Canaan. 
But the nation as whole rejected and disobeyed God. Disobeyed his promises, disobeyed his word. They didn't trust him and they decided they're not going to try to enter into the land of the promise. Again, this is the background of whole chapter 3 and chapter 4. That event in Numbers 14. Numbers 14. So he's saying he lets all not be like them because we individually even have the possibility that we can fall as the example that we have seen in the children of disobedience that left the land of Egypt. Amen? When he said the word example, that that generation was an example to us, what does that mean? That means that each and every one of us can actually end up in the same way because there are an example of how disobedience can lead to an utter rejection of God. Amen? And the author of Hebrews here is saying that their attitude toward God, their attitude toward the word of God is an example to each and every one of us. And if we're going to act the same way they acted, we're also going to end up in the same fate they ended up in. They are not an exception. They are an example to how everybody should live according to God's word and not compromise. Otherwise, we're going to have the same fate. Paul himself told us pretty much the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 10, 5 to 12. He's also talking about that first generation that left the land of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And what does he tell us here? He said this, but with most of them, that first generation, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And what does he say after that? Now, these things became our examples. The same way the first generation dealt with God and God dealt with them is an example to you and me on how we should deal with God and how God will deal with us in response. And he says here, now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after even thing as they lusted. When they lusted and they got punished, that's an example for us not to be lusted because we're going to also, uh, not to lust because we're also going to end up with the same fate. That we should not lust after evil things as they lusted and do not become idolater as they, as there, as were some of them, nor, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted. Nor complain as some of them also complained. Now all these things happened to them as an exception, right? No, as an example. These are not just exceptions. This is not one event throughout the history of humanity that will never happen again. This is an example of how people, when they deal with God in this belief and this obedience, and how God will deal back with them with utter rejection. These things have happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition. This is written for us. When you read the Old Testament, it is not just a bunch of random stories. These are examples of how God deals with people when they disbelieve Him. Amen? It is written for our admonition. This is the way you should conduct your life, not like the first generation that left the land of Egypt. And it is written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. That's you and me. And then he says this, verse 13. Therefore, let him who think he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul say, is saying this. The first generation that experienced the power of God throughout 
the land of Egypt, who have seen the power of God parting the Red Sea, and they walk through it on a dry land, the same generation that have seen the mighty hand of God and the mighty presence of God coming down from the mountain and experience His presence in so many ways, they might have thought that they're safe. That, you know what, we have seen the power of God so much, we got to definitely make it. No matter how much we complain, no matter how much we sin, no matter how much we disobey, we are safe. But Paul is saying this, they thought they might have been safe because they experienced the power of God in so many ways, yet they end up falling because of their disobedience. And he's saying the same thing should be applicable to you and to me. If you think that you're standing, if you think you're too spiritual, if you think that, hey, I'm good, I'm Christian, I'm walking with God, I can come to sin, come close to sin as much as I possibly can, it will not affect me. If you think that you have tasted God to the point, enough to the point that you're not going to fall in sin, then this warning is for you. Amen? Let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Nobody, Paul is telling us, is too spiritual to fall in sin. It doesn't matter if you're the preacher. It doesn't matter if you're the head of the CMA. It doesn't matter if the, you're the Pope of Rome. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are. You are subject to fall in sin. So be very careful. And that's precisely what the author of Hebrews was telling us here as well. Chapter 4, verse 11. He said this. Let us therefore be diligent to enter into the rest. Lest anyone, including the leaders of the church of the Hebrews... It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're the apostle. It doesn't matter how, how much you know God's word and how much you love Jesus. Be careful because you can also fall in sin and be ruined and reject God the same way the first generation that left the land of Egypt has rejected God. Amen? They're just an example. It doesn't matter how much you love Jesus. Be very, very, very careful. Amen? And then he went on to exhort them to enter into the rest by bringing the word of God into the picture. Now in verse 12 he says this, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Why is the author of Hebrews is talking about God's word here? Why is he bringing description of God's word? Because the problem of the first generation that left the land of Egypt is that they did not obey the word of God. That's pretty much the problem, right? God has promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the children of Israel, many incidents throughout the Old Testament. We see God has promised that they will enter into the promised land, even with an oath. God has promised that this generation will enter into the promised land. Amen? But when they came to Kadesh Barnea, when they came to hear the report of the, of the ten spies who brought back the bad reports that they cannot make it, what happened to God's word? They threw it out of the window, right? All the promises of God, the oath of God that they're going to make it, they did not believe and they decide to despise the very word of God. Amen? And because they rejected God's word, they ended up being utterly rejected by God. That's why the author of Hebrews here is bringing the word of God to our attention. Because that was the downfall of that first generation. Amen? Even when God told them, you know what? It's done. You're not going to enter. And God, again, with another oath, said that this generation is not going to enter. What, what did they do? They formed an army and they decided to march in. And what happened? They were struck down by the sword. 
Again, they kept on disbelieving. They kept on disobeying the word of God. Amen? So then God says, I will get you in. They said, no, you can't do it. God said, I'm not going to get you in. They said, oh, we're going in anyways, right? So everything God says, they decided to disobey. And that's why the author of Hebrews is bringing to our attention here the authority of the word of God. So we should obey it unlike the first generation that did not obey the word of God. Amen? Amen. And then the fact that he talks here about God's word is something that he has been talking about actually throughout these four first chapters that we talked about. This is not something new that he talks about the value of the word of God. As a matter of fact, he started the whole book by saying what? God who in times past, in various ways, spoke to our forefathers by the prophets, has in these last days, did what? Speak to us through His Son. God has spoken to us through the Son. In other words, you better listen, because this is the Word of God that is spoken to you. Amen? So from the very beginning, the author of Hebrews is showing us the value and the authority of the Word of God. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, he started by also warning his reader not to despise the word of God, right? What did he say? He said, if the word spoken by angels in the Old Testament, that's the, the, the law of, that was given to Moses, has proven steadfast. Again, what? The word that, that was spoken through angel, God's word, amen? Was proven steadfast. How will we escape if we neglect such a great of a salvation? How great that salvation is? Here it is. After it was at the first spoken by the Lord. The Lord Jesus himself. And was confirmed to us by those who heard. So he's keep on bringing to his readers the value and the authority of the word of God. He's saying, if the word of God that they disobeyed in the Old Testament proven steadfast, how much worse will be our punishment if we decide to neglect the word that God has spoken to us through his son Jesus. Amen? Throughout chapter 3 and 4, when he's arguing that Jesus is superior to Moses, Three times the author of Hebrews is quoting that part from Psalm 95. He quoted it and then he mentioned it a couple of other times. He said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Three times we read that phrase through chapter 3 and 4. God's voice, God's word, when you hear it, do not harden your heart. Because the God, the word of God has so much power and so much authority. Amen? Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, again, by the word, but that word they heard, the first generation, did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Again, he's saying, if you disbelieve the word of God, if you do not obey it, you're going to be in trouble just like that first generation. Amen? Amen? The word of God has so much power and so much authority. And that's why the author of Hebrews is bringing it to us here. Because he wants us not to be like that first generation who heard the word of God and did not obey it. He's saying you should not be like them. When you hear the word of God, you should obey it. Why? He's telling us here. Because the word of God is living is powerful, is effective, is sharper than every double-edged sword. It can pierce into the very division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it is the judge, the discerner of the very thoughts and the intention of the heart. Amen? Let's look into this description of God's word that the author of Hebrews is telling us. Number one, it is a living word. Amen? 
Stephen said the same thing in Acts chapter 7 when he was about to be uh, uh, stoned. It says this, Stephen spoke about the law of God of, uh, that was given to Moses, that Moses has received that, the living words to pass on to us. Amen? God's word is living. Why? Why is God's word living? Because God's word can give life. If it can give life, then it is a living word. Amen? Amen. Jesus said that, John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are what? Spirit and are life. There is life in the word of God because it can breathe life into you and me. First Peter 1, 2, uh, First Peter 1, 23. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the what? The living and enduring word of God. God's word is living because it birthed that generation. That the believers that Paul Peter was talking to here. He said, the word of God birthed you into the kingdom of God. Therefore, it is living and enduring. James 1.18. In the uh, exercise of his will, he brought us forth. He birthed us. How? How did God bring us into his kingdom? By the word of truth. That's how you and I were born into the kingdom of God. Amen? God's word is living because it can breathe life into your life. When we were dead in our sins, the word of God breathed life into us. And that's how we became alive. Amen? And then the same living word has not changed. Any situation into your life, God's word can breathe life into that situation and resurrection from any resurrected from any deadness. Amen? Amen. The word of God is living, but the word of God is also powerful. It's effective. The word here in Greek is energes. Any clue what we have from that in English? The word energy, right? We get energy from that. It's the word energize. It means that the word of God has enough energy in it to perform what is meant to perform. Amen? It is, has power, inherited power in it to perform the, the, word, the, the words that has been uttered. In other words, God's word is powerful because God is abiding by performing the words that he has uttered. Amen? And because God abides himself by his word, therefore his word is powerful. His word is effective. Again, we see that throughout the scripture. Even in Isaiah 55, 11, God said this. So will my word, so will my word be, uh, which goes forth from my mouth, I will not, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing which, that which I have desired and without succeeding in the matter for which I send it. God is saying, my word has inherited power in it to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish because God himself is obligated in a way to accomplish what he has promised and what he has uttered. Amen? Jeremiah 23, 29. Is, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? God's word is powerful. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The good news, the gospel, the good news when you go and tell somebody about Jesus, the very words that you utter is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believe. Amen? 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. For, which, for this reason, we also honestly thank God 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as word of man, but for what it really is. Okay, so what is really God's word? Here it is. The word of God, which also does what? Performs its work in you who believe. The word of God has an inherited power in it to perform the very words that you and I hear. Amen? The word of God is living. The word of God is powerful. It's effective. And in in, in a sense, the author of Hebrews here is encouraging his reader to strive to enter into God's rest. And he's saying the very promises of God, the very word of God will breathe life into you and will enable you to actually accomplish that. Amen? But not only living and effective, it's also sharper than every double-edged sword. The idea here is that God's word is sharp. As a matter of fact, it is sharper than every possible sword. It is is sharper than every double-edged sword or every sword ever existed. So sharp, as a matter of fact, the author of Hebrews tells us, that is able to pierce even to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joint and the marrow. The idea here is God's word can get into the very innermost being of who we are. There is absolutely nothing where the word of God cannot reach. Amen? The very secrets of the heart the word of God can reveal. I absolutely love how Leon Morris put it this way. He said, uh, we must not think that we can bluff our way out of anything. For there is no secrets hidden from God. Amen? I just love that. You cannot bluff your way out of anything because God's word can reveal the very secrets of your heart and it can pierce into the very division of the soul and the spirit, the joint and the marrow. And not only that, but it's also the judge, the discerner of the thoughts and the very intention of the heart. Not the action that you do, but the intentions of the heart that you might have not even end up doing. The word of God can still reveal that and expose that and judge that. Amen? I mean, think about what Jesus said. If you look lustfully after a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. Look at the words of Jesus when he said, um, you know, if you say you hate your brother, you say you fool because of the attitude of your heart, you already have killed it. You have killed your brother. So God's word doesn't just care about the actions that you do from the outside. It also reveals the very intentions and the very inner thoughts of your heart. Amen? Why? Because God of the word is the one who searched the heart. He's the one who judged the very secrets of the heart. And if God can judge the very secrets of the heart, then therefore his word is able to reveal the very secret of the heart and judge it as well. Amen? Amen. Paul told us that in Romans 2.16, he said that in the day of judgment, the secrets, look at this, not the actions of men, he said the secrets of men will be judged by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Not the actions, the secrets. And in Corinthians, um, in, let me see here. I, I, th- I don't think I wrote that verse reference, but he told the Corinthians this, Therefore judge nothing before the time and live until the Lord come, who, ha- who both will bring it to light the what? The hidden secret of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, the secrets, the intents of the heart. 
And then shall every man have praise from God. That's what's going to happen in the day of judgment. God will judge every single intention, every single secret of the heart. The very evil thoughts that you thought without even doing this, God will bring into light in the day of judgment. And you're going to be judged for. It works the opposite way. If you have a good intention in your heart that you didn't even get to do because you couldn't, God will see that very good intention. And you're going to be rewarded for it in, when you stand before him. Amen? So the author of Hebrews is encouraging his readers here to strive to enter into God's rest and not to deviate from God's word, even in their own personal intentions and in their own inner thoughts. Because he's saying, don't try again to bluff your way out of God's word, even in your very own inner thoughts, because the word of God will reveal that. Amen? Because of the authority of the word of God, he's encouraging his, his readers to really walk with God and not to compromise the slightest bet, because God's word will discern and judge that, even if they only intended on doing it. Amen? And then he says in verse, um, verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Amen? He says here that everything is naked before God. The idea here, we've seen the same word multiple times in, in the scripture. The idea here is a soul being without a body, bare, something bare. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.3. It's a bare seed of grain, like 1 Corinthians 15.37. It's a body without any clothing, being naked or being bare. Again, Acts 19.16. That's how the word is used in, in other incidents. And it really means that Nothing can be covered before the eyes of God. Even the very hidden secrets cannot be covered before the eyes of God. Amen? And also, that everything, he said everything is naked and it's also open or laid bare before God. And that's a tough Greek word to know exactly what he's trying to tell us here. This word was mentioned only one time right here in the whole New Testament. There's no other examples of how that word used and the context is actually comes from uh, throat, throat. And it says here that the, the idea is to seize and to twist and to open the throat. That's, that's the, the, the root of the word, which kind of makes it hard to understand. But the idea here, it was used with, for wrestlers in the sense of taking by the throat. The, word also, the, the only word that found here, the literal sense of the word is that with the head thrown back, and the throat exposed. It's like two people wrestling against each other. And one is holding one by the throat, throwing his neck back and open his mouth. And his throat is being wide open and revealed. So the idea here is something again is open or laid bare. It also implied defend, somebody who cannot defend themselves, defend less. So that's what the author of Hebrews tells us. What the word of God, God himself, God of the word can also do. Everything is in the wide open nakedness before the eyes of God. And we're going to stand helpless and defend this, defendless before him. Even the very secrets of our heart will be wide open before him when he comes to judge us. I just love how William Lane put this. It's just, I'm going to read that last paragraph. It's just, it's best if you just say, leave it as is. It says here, the impression of total exposure and utter defendlessness in the presence of God that we have seen in verse 12, when the word of God can just pierce into the very intentions and the thoughts of the heart. 
is sharpened here in verse 13. In context, the force of verse 13 is to assert that the exposure to the word of the scripture entails exposure to God himself. You guys see that? In verse 12, he says that the word of God judge the secrets of the heart. Now he's saying when you're exposed to the word of God, you're exposed to the God of the world. Amen? The surveillance of God is exhaustive. Nothing escapes his scrutiny. The images of nakedness and helpless exposure express vividly the, the horrible fate of anyone who believes that he can deceive his, create, his creator and judge. Amen? And that's what the author of Hebrews is keep telling his readers here. God's word is powerful. It has so much authority. You need to obey it. You didn't need to mess with it. You didn't need to compromise with it. You need to obey it 100% and not even deviate any way from it. Even in the very intentions and the thoughts of your heart. Amen? Let's close our eyes and pray.